Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Finance Simplified, the official podcast for street fins. We're here to break down the world of finance for you to understand from a relatable perspective with discussions with experts. This is episode 11, and today I have the very first co-host who we had on this podcast again for this episode, Cassie Ying. Cassie, would you like to remind our listeners of who you are? Hi everyone, glad to be back on again. I'm Cassie, and this year I'm joining as a senior in high school and a senior writer for Street Fins. So Cassie, last time you were on the podcast was back in July. We're recording this in early October, so you've already started your senior year of high school. What has online senior year been like so far, and what do you like or dislike about it? Well, some classes certainly have had a much smoother transition than others, and some other classes either amplify the workload or some of them decrease it because class time is cut by a lot. But overall, I think what I enjoy is really clubs because they have translated pretty well online. So how's the college application process still going? Are you still hard at work with those essays? Yeah, I'm really glad I started during the summer because lots of my time nowadays is dedicated to schoolwork clubs. And so the college app process, I mean, I'm probably still writing some, but I'm also revising a lot of the earlier deadlines. So that's probably where the bulk of my time is. That's awesome. Now, Cassie, today's episode is a bit different compared to our last episodes. In previous episodes, we simplified financial history like the dot-com bubble or financial concepts like risk and market cycles. Now, this episode is called Simplifying the COVID-19 Market, in which we're simplifying everything from when COVID hit the markets in February to early August when this episode is actually recorded. Now, compared to our past episodes, this is one that will simplify a current event as opposed to a past event or finance concept. Exactly. And I'll see the obvious. COVID has had and continues to have a large impact on the market due to everything it's shut down or slowed down. Plenty has happened since we recorded this episode. But it's worth taking a look at the first six months of the impact and really understanding what happened during that time period. Right. And our guest is probably one of the best people to have on to talk about this impact. He's a leading name in finance and business, and in my opinion, is really one of the most insightful minds in the world of money there is today. We have an incredible conversation that will simplify the trends and behaviors of investors and the government during COVID. So let's just get to simplifying. From the minds of the students at StreetFins, this is Finance Simplified, the podcast that simplifies the seemingly complex and confusing world of money. I'm your host, Rohan Gupta. I'm sure that all of you have heard of every headline imaginable about COVID-19 by now. Our guest, Morgan Housel, knows all about the headlines, but also knows how to look beyond them to analyze the market and human behavior, which will undoubtedly help us sort through and simplify the COVID-19 market. His career in finance is incredibly impressive and unique, so I'll just let him introduce himself. My name is Morgan Housel. I'm a partner at the Collaborative Fund, and I've spent my whole career as a financial writer writing about kind of the intersection of investing history and behavioral finance, trying to learn about how we as, as humans really think about money how we go astray when we're thinking about money. And what, what have I been doing during core time? Well, I have, I have two young children and we actually just moved across the country in May, which is not a good time to move, but it's, we, we had planned our move well before COVID-19. So we packed everything up in uh, late April, early May and moved my children and, and my wife across the country, which was uh, exciting and, and, uh, and slightly harrowing at times, but we got it done. Yeah, that sounds very crazy for, for you, especially during this time. So actually, I just kind of want to preface this by saying, you know, the reason I got into investing at first was 
because, you know, I thought it was a nice way to make money without having to do much physical labor. But then as you soon learn that it takes kind of a mental and emotional toll on you. But as I've sort of matured from when I started learning about investing when I was 11, like seven years ago, to where I am now, I've sort of developed this interest and view of finance that's rather than this thing that's just all about the money, it's something that also has behavior. And I've begun to view finance as a window into human behavior and human psychology. And it seems like, Morgan, you and I are kind of on the same page about that. So I'm curious to know, how did you sort of develop this psychological, historical lens with which to view finance? I think you're exactly right. The first chapter of my book is called The Greatest Show on Earth. And that's what I think money is, because I think money is such a window into how people think about these really broad topics that have nothing to do with money, like just things about risk and greed and how people deal with opportunity and scarcity and stress and and windfalls. These things that have a lot of value in teaching us skills about how people's heads work and how life works that have have nothing to do with money. For me, it really started in 2007, which is when I started as a full-time financial writer. And this was kind of in the early days of the financial crisis of 2007 that really took off in 2008. So I was covering the economy at the time. So I was really watching what was going on with the financial crisis and the Great Recession. And it occurred to me pretty early on that the explanations for why the financial crisis was happening and why you could have a recession that was that big and so many mistakes taking place among so many smart people, uh, you could not find those explanations in any finance or economics textbook. They didn't exist. They weren't there. But you could find them in psychology textbooks and sociology textbooks and history books and writings. That was where you could find the answers to those things about why people would take risks that big, why people could become so deluded, so irrationally optimistic about their own chances, their own circumstances. That's not something that is typically taught in finance because finance is usually viewed as a math-based field, something close to physics where there are numbers and there are formulas and then you get an answer and then it's going to tell you exactly what to do. That's typically how finance is viewed. And I just viewed it as something much closer to psychology or history or sociology, where it's this kind of soft, mushy topics that are kind of hard to define, hard to quantify. They're different for everyone. So there's no real universal laws. People think about these topics in very different ways. It's not real, you know, it's not two plus two equals four. It's this kind of real mushy, vague kind of theories and and, and philosophies. That is what I think finance is. And so that's when kind of my exploration of finance took on the role of learning about finance through the lens of non-finance stories. So I write about investing full-time for a living, but I almost never read investing books. I don't read a lot of investing commentary. I'm just not really interested in that. But it's not because I don't want to learn about investing. It's just that I learn through investing by reading history and reading psychology and reading biology and evolution and, and all these other fields that have nothing to do with investing. But they kind of fall under this umbrella of how do people think about risk and how do people think about greed and fear? And learning about those topics are, I think, how you become not just a better investor, but better at dealing with money in general, like the broader topic of not just investing, but money. And a lot of those topics too, just explain a lot of things about how life works, about why people do well in their careers or might have problems in their career, why a lot of businesses you know, thrive and then crash and don't make it. It's really a wide encompassing field of study, which is why I called it in the book, The Greatest Show on Earth. Now over to my co-host, Cassie who will get more into Morgan's investing philosophy. So uh, Rohan and I are both really interested in, as you said, the intersection between the history, the psychology, and more of the hard power, the the stats, the data, um, and how these all form an investor's uh, basic philosophy. 
So how would you say these three have interacted in forming the core of your behavioral approach to investing? I'm, I'm just interested in looking back at history and saying, what are the common things that keep popping up in terms of what investors do right and do wrong? Because if there are things that show up throughout history, things that people have done in 2020 and 2008 and 1960 and 1860, these things that keep coming up again and again, those are the kind of things that we are likely to conclude are just fundamental attributes of human behavior that we can put a lot of emphasis in and say, this is going to be a part of our future because these are things that that never change. They never go away. So I'm just interested in those really broad topics. I also want to make it so that there are only a handful of things that I put a ton of of weight into an investing rather than trying to make a really complicated model with lots of moving parts and you know focusing on on dozens of different variables I just want to say what are like the five big things that I can focus all my attention on that's going to have the biggest influence on my in my financial returns over the course of my lifetime so things like if you just take a really simple model, let's make it you know a three-variable model and say, live below your means, so you're saving some money, invest for the long term, as in more than 10 years is your time horizon, and expect and accept there to be volatility, that the market's going to go up and down, there's going to be recessions and booms and busts. That to me is like 90% of what you need to know about finance. It's 90%. Even if you are a professional investor, financial advisor, those three things, save some money, invest for the long-term, expect volatility, that's the vast majority of what you need to know. And so if I can just look at history and just focus on those topics, who has done well with those three things? Who has not done well with those three things? Why have they not done well? What was their mindset that caused them to take a different approach and to be swayed away from those three things? Those are the topics that I'm really interested in because I think they're interesting to learn about. There's so much history that you can learn. There's so many examples to learn from among those three topics, but they're also just going to be the most relevant to me personally for dealing with my own money. So those those three things are the biggest kind of drivers of what I do with my own money. And they're very simple by design. There's nothing, should be nothing controversial about that. There's nothing surprising about any of those. But maybe like that's the thing. It's the the really simple, basic, non-surprising stuff that moves the needle. In the same way that if I said, eat your vegetables and get some exercise and you'll be in better health, it's not exciting. It's not surprising. It doesn't cause anyone to say, oh, wow, that's amazing. I never thought of that. It's none of that, but it works. It's really effective. So no one wants to hear it, but people don't necessarily follow it. They still eat donuts and sit on the couch. And so that really simple, basic stuff, just like with health, is true for finance too, that it's the really simple, basic stuff that is the most important, but it's also that we are most likely to overlook over time. Often you write about regular people and how they deal with their money well or not well, and those very simple like principles that you outlined to us just now. But taking a look at famous investors and specifically The content of your writing actually reminded Rohan and me of Howard Marks because you wrote a lot about emotions, of course, and how you can't separate them from the people who are handling all this money. So what do you think about his thoughts on investing? And what are some other investors that you admire or maybe that you've incorporated some of their philosophies into yours? I think he's great. And what I think is great about Howard Marks is particularly, you know, his investing returns speak for themselves. And the way that he invests is not that relevant to the average investor. He's investing in high yield debt, beaten down, distressed debt, not something that your average mom and pop investor should be getting into or even can get into. But I think what is great about Howard Marks and what has made him famous and almost a household name, at least among investors, is his writing. And his writing is what is, is really drawn people's attention to him. And if you talk to him about the writing, uh, he writes these memos about once per quarter, and they're very widely read. A lot of people love reading his memos. And if you talk to Howard Marks about those memos, 
when he started writing the memos in, I think, 1990, he said no one was reading them. He didn't have an audience. He would send them to his investors and investors would throw them in the trash. No one, no one was reading them. But it didn't bother him that no one was reading them because he says he was basically writing them for himself. He was writing them because the memos, the act of sitting down and writing was clarifying his thinking in a way that no amount of just thinking could ever do. So forcing himself to put his thoughts down onto paper and write them and look at his words and say, look, do those words on the paper make sense? Are they rational? Or is this idea just a gut feeling that I have that I can't really back up? I can't really really justify once I put it on paper. That to me is one of the things I really admire about Howard Marks is that he understands that the process of writing is not just something that you do for other people. It's something that you do for yourself. That's one thing that I would would take away from Howard Marks as someone who I really admire. It's obviously cliche to say Warren Buffett. So I will give you something that is you know, not necessarily surprising, but the uh, non-traditional thing that I love about Warren Buffett is that, look, of course he is a great investor and that's why he's been so successful and so wealthy. But there's this quirk that's easy to overlook, which is that the reason that he's so successful and so wealthy is not just because he's been a great investor. It's because he's been a great investor for 80 years. He started investing when he was 11 years old, and now he's in his early 90s and still going strong, still still going to the office full-time and and giving it everything he's got. That is how compounding works, where it's not something that takes place in one year or five years or even 10 or 20 years. But the reason that his success is just stratospheric is because he's been compounding for 80 years. And I, I make this point in my book that, look, if Warren Buffett had started investing when he was 25 and he retired when he was 65, like most people would, you would have never heard of him. He would, he would never have become famous because you know, that's just not how, how compounding works. The reason that his net worth is so high and his success is so great is because of, he started when he was a kid and he continued on for decades after most people retired. That to me is the biggest lesson, the biggest takeaway from Warren Buffett. And that's what, you know, if you were to write a book about how Warren Buffett became successful, I've often joked like the, the title of the book should just be, this guy has been investing for 80 years. That's the biggest takeaway, the biggest factor of his success that I think is something that we can all learn from. Like most of us don't have an 80 year time horizon in front of us unless we're going to live, you know, well into our hundreds, but most people, most people don't have that. But just the simple idea that the secret to his success is time. And patience is something that I think all of us can learn from. Yeah. And, you know, Howard Marks, we had him on almost exactly a year ago for this podcast. And a lot of what he writes about, as you mentioned, the emotional side, but also the fact that you're writing for yourself. I think he also wrote sort of the front page blurb for your book. So do you want to talk a little bit about your book, The Psychology of Money? And without spoiling too much, what you can have readers expect to learn from it? Yeah. So my book, The Psychology of Money, which comes out on September 8th, is based on 19 stories, true to what we were just talking about. Most of the stories have nothing to do with investing, but all of which have, or nothing to do with money, I should say, but all of them have kind of a clear takeaway about the psychology of money in terms of what thinking about money and making decisions with our money does inside of our heads when we're doing it and how we can get better at money not by learning the formulas or the numbers or the data, but just becoming more aware of what happens inside of our own heads when we're trying to make decisions about our money. Topics like fear and greed and happiness and opportunity, those kind of things. So using stories that I hope are fun and engaging and surprising that have nothing to do with investing. There's stories in there from World War II, stories in there about evolutionary history, stories about meteorology and glaciers that have nothing to do with money. 
So I would hope for people that it is one of the more interesting finance and money books that you will read because it is not just page after page of numbers and formulas and charts. It's much more, I, I hope, engaging. And I, and I hope that even though it is a finance book, it teaches you something about life that you find useful that has nothing to do with finance or money. Now back to our show and into the main topic of the episode, COVID-19. Yeah, and oftentimes that it's not just the numbers that drive the market, but also perception and narrative and stories that drive the market too. And the biggest story for the past six months has obviously been the COVID-19 market. So getting into the topic of today's episode, which is obviously COVID, can you tell us about some of the similarities and differences between the current pandemic and previous crises? Yeah, I think that the biggest thing, if you were to compare what's going on right now with the Great Depression in the 1930s or 2008, the, the, the more recent financial crisis, the big difference between those is that the Great Depression and 2008 affected almost everyone, no matter what industry you're in. There were some differences between industries. You know, banks in 1930 or in 2008 were obviously very hard hit, but it more or less affected everyone. What is different now that I think is the biggest differentiator with what's going on is that there are some businesses, a large percentage of businesses in 2020 that are not just hurt, but they're devastated. They're completely devastated. And many, many of those businesses, a large percentage of them will not make it. They won't survive. And then you have these other businesses, a fairly large percent of businesses that are not affected at all because they are, they are digital companies, their employees can work from home. There's even increased demand for their products. And this is why I think a lot of people have been taken by surprise, including me early on, about why the stock market has done so well over the past four or five months. We're sitting here with 50 million people lost their jobs between March and July. It's the biggest economic crisis since the Great Depression, if not ever. And yet the stock market is now up year to date. How do you explain that? I think the biggest explanation is that the companies that make up the stock market as we know it, are heavily tilted into tech companies like Facebook and Google and Amazon and Microsoft, whose businesses are fine right now. They can send their employees at home and operate from home, even have increased demand for their products because so many companies are scrambling to try to move into the cloud, et cetera. Amazon, of course, has taken away market share from in-person retail companies. So those companies that make up a big disproportionate share of the stock market are what are driving the returns. But on the other hand, you have, you know, let's call it half of businesses in America that are mom and pop restaurants or movie theaters or dry cleaners or auto dealerships. And a lot of those companies are 100% closed. Their revenue is zero. It has been zero for five months and it might be zero for another six months, in which case they're going to have to close their doors for good. That to me is the biggest, is like it's so black and white in terms of the haves and the have nots is one way that you could summarize it. Like businesses that are doing great and businesses that are just toast. And I think a conclusion from that that's likely to happen in the coming months, years, even decades, is that it's going to exacerbate income inequality, which was already an issue. It was already a feature of our economy for the past 30 or 40 years. That's going to be exacerbated now between businesses and employees and their investors who get crushed, get annihilated, and we're going to have a hard time digging out versus another, let's call it maybe 30% of the economy that are going to be, have been doing better than ever. And they kept their jobs, they kept their paychecks, their paychecks grew, their stock portfolios grew. That's going to really exacerbate the gap between income classes in a way that will have an impact on politics. It'll have an impact on sociology. Like that trickles down. That was already one of the biggest stories of our economy for our generation is income inequality and the gap between different income groups, the, the rising gap, gaps in opportunity, gaps in income mobility, the ability to move from a poor family to a rich family. That was already like the defining story of our time. 
I think it's about to get, it already is, and it's about to get 10 times worse than it was. So that is, I think, going to be one lasting element of COVID-19 that we can kind of already see. Like, we don't know how or when this is going to end, however you want to define ending. But something like that, like just a rising disparity among income class is something that I think you can put a high degree of confidence on is going to be a feature of our economy going forward. And it helps explain things like why the stock market is doing so well, even if the economy is doing so poorly. Yeah. And Cassie and I, we both live in the Bay Area, which is notorious for the level of wealth and income inequality there is. And also, you know, you were talking about the big tech stocks and why they're achieving the disproportionate share. I just say that the unemployment is also disproportionately lower in Silicon Valley as well. And, and I just want to touch more about, you know, what does this overall disconnect reveal about investor behavior in terms of just sort of this broad behavioral view on it? And then also, how does that sort of tie into the large volatility that we saw happen in March? And there's, you know, obviously less volatility right now, but how should we just sort of think about that in a more broad sense? I think what's, what's interesting, look, what I just explained in terms of, look, the stock market's doing fine because these tech companies that make up a big share, I'm only explaining that in hindsight. If you went back to March and asked almost anyone, including myself, they would have said, oh my gosh, the global economy is being locked down. We have the potential for 15 or 20% unemployment. Everyone is in trouble. And the, the whole stock market as a whole is going to decline 50% or more and stay there for a long time. That was kind of the common view back in March. I probably would have said something like that myself. The fact that that's not what happened, that we are now bad, we've made up all of the losses since then, is something that I think, even if it's relatively obvious in hindsight that that was going to happen, that was not obvious to many people, if anyone, back in March, just four or five months ago. A takeaway from that, which has always been kind of a big theme for me and you know, writing about how people think about finances, that no one knows what's going to happen next. Nobody knows what the stock market or the economy is going to do next because the big trends, even that are obvious in hindsight, are never obvious in foresight. And the biggest lesson from 2020 so far, you know, if you were to go back to December or January, obviously no one saw this coming. You couldn't have seen it coming. And that's, that's the biggest lesson going forward as well, that there are these big things that happen in the world, these big breaks, these big black swans that no one can possibly see coming, but have the biggest impact on the path of economies and how markets play out over time, how people's lives play out over time. And so I think 2020 should just instill a greater sense of humility in people when it comes to trying to predict what the economy is going to do next. That's always been a big thing for me, but it just gets so driven home in something like 2020. And what's interesting is that even though people may intuitively know that, that look, the last eight months have been so impossible to predict, but a lot of people seem to have a very clear view in their minds about what the next eight months are going to look like. We're going to get a vaccine earlier next year, and then this is going to happen. And it's very difficult to deal with like the cognitive dissonance of saying, no one could have predicted the last eight months, but hold my beer. Let me tell you what the next eight months are going to be like. That's a difficult thing to deal with for a lot of people, but it's very common. Yeah, it just speaks to, I guess not just a financial desire, but really a human desire for a need for certainty. And going back, you know, we talked about the tech industry and why that's doing so well. How much of that optimism do you think is justified looking back in hindsight? I think a fair amount of it. I mean, if you look at the results of Amazon, Google, Facebook, look, you could have made the argument well before COVID-19 that those stocks were overvalued. They've run up so much, just the traditional valuation metrics. That's not a game that I play, but smart people have made that argument. But their earnings, by and large, as a group, have held up and will probably continue to grow. So I think you could justify it in that sense. The other thing that we have right now because of COVID is just an incredible amount of stimulus from the Federal Reserve and from the U.S. Treasury on the fiscal side in terms of higher unemployment benefits that expired last week and stimulus checks, so $1,200 stimulus checks. 
all those things combined, particularly the action from the Federal Reserve that is pumping trillions of dollars in the economy, will have an impact on stock prices, of course. So even if you look at the tech stocks and you say, it's not rational, it's not deserved, well, the Fed's pumping in tons of money. That's what's going to happen. Again, I say that in hindsight, but that happened after 2008 as well, where the Fed pumped a ton of money into the system. And as the stock market started rising, people said, this isn't rational, this isn't justified, but it's, it's what happened. Like Fed money is a potent stimulus. And when it wants to use it and use it in a big way, it, it has an impact on stock prices. I think the total number for the Fed's monetary stimulus is $3 trillion, And the Treasury, with what it's done with the CARES Act, as well as the stimulus checks that it was sending out, that's also about $3 trillion too. So a total of $6 trillion has just been pumped into the economy and trying to stimulate liquidity. And one of the more popular usages of the stimulus checks has actually been, I, I've read quite a few articles where the people who receive these, they go on and day trade. And day trading has also been a big factor in the past six months. So I'm curious, what do you think has been the impact of day trading on this market? I think it's it's inevitable that when you lock people in their homes and there's no sports, there's no hanging out with your friends, there's nothing you're just locked in your home with nothing to do. But hey, the government just sent you 1200 bucks and you can open a Robinhood account in 30 seconds and Robinhood is kind of gamified investing. It's almost inevitable that this was going to happen. So, just to make this clear, day trading is a type of short-term investing strategy popular amongst beginners and professionals alike. In fact, it's so short that it usually equates to buying and selling a stock, bond, option, or whatever security, all within the span of a single day, hour, minute, or even a couple of seconds. Since stocks and other securities will only fluctuate a certain extent each day, day traders tend to focus on small price movements from highly traded, often volatile stocks. For that reason, day traders are known to focus on technical analysis instead of fundamental analysis. With technical analysis, day traders look at stock charts, prices, and volumes to determine whether to buy or sell. On the flip side, Fundamental analysis involves the evaluation of the intrinsic or true value of a stock by studying factors like the economy and the company's financial statements. However, during this pandemic, day traders have been incentivized by market volatility, government checks, the ease with which to access complex trading strategies, and not to mention the boredom of staying at home. This has made it extremely popular today. Here's more on what Morgan thinks about day trading and its eventual impact. I'm not quite a fan of it. I'm a fan of young people getting interested in investing. And if the only way that they can get interested in it is by day trading a bunch of junk stocks, you know, Hertz and whatnot, then, you know, okay, that's, that's probably better than nothing. But the odds that the huge majority of those people doing that, not all of them, but the huge majority of them will lose money, end up burned and end up with kind of a sour taste in their mouth from investing is pretty high. And that, that's what I don't necessarily like about it. Look, myself, as I invest today, I dollar cost average into diversified index funds, and I'm going to leave it alone for as many decades as I can. That's how I invest today. But I got started when I was you know, a teenager day trading stocks as well. Like, I, that's how I got into it too. I moved on from that very quickly, but I think it's okay to if people are starting there as a way to learn. But we should accept the consequences of what tons of trading, tons of portfolio turnover among some of the most volatile stocks and some of the most junky companies, bankrupt companies in many cases, of what that is going to lead to over time. I think it's it's inevitable. It doesn't surprise me that it's happening, but it worries me in some sense that there's going to be a reckoning someday, whether that is next month or two years from now, in a way that's going to maybe scar a generation for many years to come after that. Yeah. And I think personally speaking to my sort of investing I'm also someone who's very much risk averse. I remember I tried day trading for two days and I couldn't figure out like all these like technical indicators. I'm like, this isn't for me. I'd rather just, you know, 
either passively invest or find a company based on fundamental values. And, you know, that's something that a lot of my friends, they have not reached that level of risk aversion yet. And they continue to trade and they continue to make and lose money on the day. But it is also kind of a double-edged sword because a lot of my friends, they wouldn't have gotten into or participate in financial markets without the stay-at-home situation. And But it's a double-edged sword because, you know, you have more people getting involved with financial markets, but these people are also inexperienced too. And they don't understand at the first level how the financial markets really work. As you said, it's gamified from platforms like Robinhood. So I'm curious to know, and this can expand beyond day trading, when, just speaking broadly, when beginning level investors and beginner level money has access to advanced investment opportunities or advanced trading strategies, that whole thing, and that meets the experience, perhaps institutional level money, what is the sort of impact that has, like this sort of clash of this growing population of beginners and inexperienced money versus the experienced institutional side, if that makes sense? Yeah, yeah, no, it totally makes sense. And I think broadly, it doesn't have that much impact. I don't, it, it's probably not swaying markets that much, with the exception of a couple of, you know, really small companies that they're so small that even if you have a small number of Robinhood investors that are going in there and trading, it's going to have a big impact. But in terms of like what impact is it having on Amazon and Apple and Google, probably not that much. One thing I would say though, that's really important is that there is almost no other field out there where somebody who has no idea what they're doing has the potential of doing really well, just from some degree of luck. You know, if rather than trading Robinhood accounts, people were trying to go out and build skyscrapers or perform open heart surgery or build, you know, cell phones that compete with the iPhone, their odds of doing that successfully if they have no experience are zero. There's no way that you can, you know, perform open heart surgery or perform a root canal better than a Harvard trained cardiologist if you have no idea what you're doing. It's just there's no chance whatsoever. But people who have no idea what they're doing can open up a Robinhood account click a couple buttons and do very, very well. So just the idea that there is a potential for luck to sway results, it makes it so that it can increase people's confidence much faster than it actually increases their ability. So you have, you know, particularly in the last six months when the market's done really well, and I'm willing to bet that if you looked at the average Robinhood results over the last four or five months, it's probably not only good, it's probably very good. And therefore, you probably have increased the confidence among hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of those investors who say, look, I've done really well at investing and therefore I know what I'm doing. And so now I'm going to keep doing it with more confidence and leverage and money than ever before. And that's when things get really dangerous because investing is very complex. It's not not necessarily difficult, but it's very nuanced and complex and things turn very quickly. So the odds that the winds are going to blow in the other direction than they have for most of young investors' lives are very high. But if you go into that with a lot of confidence that you do know what you're doing, then it gets really difficult when that happens. That story has played out for every generation. I am a 36-year-old. I'm sort of an older member of my generation. And it happened with us when we were teenagers. It happened with my parents' generation. Every single generation does this. The circumstances change because your ability to invest really easily is different. It was sort of easy for my generation, harder for my parents, harder for their parents. Like it's gotten easier over time, but every generation jumps into the investing game kind of at the lower end of day trading small companies and have a period where they do very well and that increases their confidence and then it turns in the other direction. This is not whatsoever, I want to make clear, that I am anti-Robinhood investor. I think it's great that so many people are getting involved in investing and learning about investing. I commend that. I think it's wonderful. 
But you can also just, if you study the history of these things happening, because this is not the first time this movie has played, the history of these things happening, the odds that it ends poorly for most, not all, but most of these people are pretty high. Yeah, and I think the most recent time that movie was played was in the capacity, especially with the composition of what people are day trading in tech stocks and and the really volatile stocks. The last time that happened was the dot-com bubble. And you say you're 36 now, that would have put you kind of in the range to be a teenager back in 2001 and 1999, that that region of time. So it's very interesting how, you know, history will, it may not repeat itself, but it may rhyme, you know? And I, I totally remember now that you bring that up, I remember 1999. So I would have been like 16, 17, talking with my friends saying, should we go to college or do you, should we just day trade? Because we could like, we can, we can get rich day trade. Let's just do that for our careers. <laughs> like, it's, <laughs> and I laugh saying that in hindsight, cause it's so ridiculous, but that same story is playing out today. And look, most of the people in my generation who even experienced that, they, of course they ended up fine. Most of them are investors today, but you, you just have to accept what risk is and what like the, the quirks of investing are that give people the possibility of doing really well. Cause I think you're right. The analog between What's going on right now and what happened with my generation in the late 1990s is very, very close. It's, it's almost identical to what happened. Yeah. And, and, you know, there are some people who with the rise of day trading trend, I've seen a lot more videos on YouTube, more, I guess, firms and funds being started that are solely dedicated to day trading. And these are people who may not have had a background in finance before. Not that that's a bad thing, but it's just something that shows their noviceness to this new game. And it also kind of shows that, you know, these people who are putting these, like these trading gurus that have sort of emerged now there's a huge survivorship curve amongst them too. Because I'm thinking of the people who, you know, you read on CNBC that, oh, a certain person made $100,000 on some random options trade. And then I read a story about the one 20-year-old Robinhood user, Alex Kearns, who, you know, he took on debt and he made this play that lost like, I think something like negative $700,000 and he eventually committed suicide. So it's like two extremes and the survivorship curve is so extreme not just in day trading, but I think in finance and across bigger funds, but especially in day trading. So yeah. how much, I'm just curious to know what your thoughts are on that survivorship curve as it applies to day trading, but also amongst other kinds of people investing during COVID. I think what's, what's true, and this is true for all of history, like not, not just more recent times, but if there are, you know, just making these numbers up, if there are a hundred investors, the odds that five or 10 of them are going to do very well are pretty high, even if it's just luck alone. It's not even skill, it's just luck. The odds that those five or 10 will make a ton of money are high. And the odds that the media will go out and profile those people, that those people will start hedge funds, that they will start investing newsletters is also high. And therefore the other you know, 90 investors who are watching the example, like the, the spotlight will go, like even if that is a tiny small minority of what's happening, they'll get all the attention. Even if they're 5% of the investors, they'll get 100% of the attention. And therefore the other 90% kind of say, Oh, well, if they can do it, I can do it. I'll go follow them. I'll follow, I'll pay for the advice, et cetera. But even if their success was not driven by luck, although it may have been, but even if it wasn't luck, the odds that it is sustainable, like let's say that their initial success was not luck. It was skill. They knew what they were doing. They made the right decision. They did the good analysis. They got it right. The odds that you can continue that and you will keep being right in a sustainable way for a a period of time in which your followers are going to stick with you and they're not going to abandon you when you stop being right even temporarily. That's the challenge as well. This happened after 2000, where there were people who were really right in the 1990s and they gained a big following. And then the bottom fell out, the bubble burst, and all their followers left. Their investors left, their subscribers left. And a lot of those people, even when their subscribers left, their investors left, they were still making calls that ended up being right. They were saying things about the stock market and the economy that ended up being right, but it didn't matter because all of their followers abandoned them. 
So even though the right decisions that they're making, like no one stuck around long enough to benefit from that good advice. So when you think about the long history of stock market volatility, just the cycles of booms and busts, if you are a fund manager or you have a newsletter, if you are someone who is giving advice, it's not just, can you make the right call? Can you do the right analysis? That's hard enough, but it's not just that. It's can you get people to stick with you and not abandon you, get people to believe in you for long enough to endure those ups and downs. And that is really difficult in itself. Yeah. And I think Howard Marks introduced this thing called manager risk in one of his memos. And it's the fact that you have to also appear right and you have to appear right consistently so that your following sticks with you. Otherwise, you might get fired or you might just not be given as much trust with the money that you manage. And kind of moving on to something that I was very surprised to see back in March and April was whenever you hear about a company like Hertz or the airlines or the cruise stocks, whenever you hear news about their bankruptcy or a slowing business environment for them, what happened was that their stocks, like they initially reacted very negatively, but now they're sort of going up now. So what do you make of that? I think it's two things. One, it's the stock market is always looking forward, of course. And it's not looking at the cruise industry's current bookings, which of course are zero, but it's just saying, what are the odds that there's going to be a vaccine or some treatment? And then there's going to be not only demand returning, but pent up demand for people who are like, please get me on a cruise ship. I can't wait to do it. That's what it's looking at. It's also a combination of this. And this is a little bit technical. I'll try to simplify this. When interest rates are really low, then there's not a lot of competition for your money. Because when people are doing something with their money, they can either put it in the stock market or they can put it into bonds and a bank account. When interest rates are zero, the competition from bonds and checking accounts isn't really there anymore. And therefore, what really matters in the stock market is not what's going on this year. There's no competition for your money this year. You're going to put it in the stock market. So what really matters, what moves the needle in the stock market is what's going to happen in the future. Not what's going on this year, because you can put your money in the stock market this year. There's no opportunity cost from bonds. So what really matters is what are these companies going to do two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now? That's what makes up the biggest portion of the valuation analysis for these companies. If interest rates are higher, then what those companies are going to do this year is more important. But when interest rates are, are so low, then what happens this year is really not that important. And then you combine that with what we talked about earlier, just the amount of Federal Reserve stimulus. And for a lot of those smaller companies, and they're small now because their stocks have been beaten down so much. That's when you do get kind of the Robin Hood effect of a lot of those traders do have the ability to push those share prices around, push them up. Less so if we're talking Amazon or Google, but if you're talking about Delta Airlines, you know, a smaller company that's been beaten up quite a bit, then do smaller traders have the ability to move that price around? Yes, absolutely. So I think it's a combination of those things. Yeah, going back to like you're talking about interest rates being low and the stimulus putting a historical perspective on that. As I mentioned earlier, there's been a total of $6 trillion in both fiscal and monetary stimulus that's been injected. But looking at the historical implications, and I'm thinking about whether or not it would have an inflationary impact or whether it has an effect on the dollar, could you put this stimulus in a historical perspective? One way to think about this is just to contextualize what we've done. Leave aside the Fed. Let's just look at the federal government budget deficit. I think it's likely that by the time 2020 is over, we'll have run a $4 trillion deficit in 2020, and then probably more in 2021. But let's just say that COVID cost the federal government $4 trillion. That's what we spent fighting COVID in terms of stimulus packages, not even the Federal Reserve, just what was sent in checks and unemployment, you know, stimulus checks and unemployment. For context, adjusted for inflation, for World War II, we spent about $4 trillion fighting World War II, and that took place over four years. So even adjusted for inflation, what we're going to spend fighting COVID just this year in 2020 is equal to what we spent on World War II over four years. That to me is just a, a shocking figure. And that's all adjusted for inflation. 
It just shows how much money is being thrown at this. If that money was not there, if we did not have that stimulus package and what we're going to have for the rest of the year, I'm sure there's going to be more stimulus packages. We would be calling this the second Great Depression. I don't think there's any doubt about that whatsoever. I think unemployment would be at least 20, if not 30% or more. And the number of businesses that would not make it and therefore be laying off more than employees would be so much higher than it is right now. We have this weird thing in the economy where this is the worst economic crisis that we've ever faced, even worse than the Great Depression in some senses. But incomes are rising by the most they ever have and rising to record levels. Credit card default rates are going down credit card bills are being paid off in record numbers during this quote unquote depression. It's a weird thing that we don't have a lot of historical precedent for. Whereas during the great depression, particularly in the early years, it was a hands-off approach was just let the cards fall wherever they may. And like, good luck to everyone. You got to figure it out by yourself. In 2008, there was more stimulus, but it wasn't that big. The stimulus package in 2008 was $787 billion, which seemed like a big number back then. It really wasn't. It should have been several trillion to really dig us out. So what we're dealing with right now is the largest attempt in history to write a major financial crisis. So far, I think it's probably been the best executed stimulus package in history. Leave aside all politics from that. I think it's been so well executed this year that has saved the economy so far. We don't know what's going to happen next. But so far, the reason that things are bad, but not absolutely miserable for a larger number of people right now is almost entirely because of what's happened with the federal stimulus packages. Now back over to Cassie. So let's take a step back from the strictly financial factors impacting the market currently. And Rohan and I noticed that an ongoing theme in a lot of your writing is about how popular it is to be pessimistic about the future and the future of the market. So can you talk a little bit about how maybe coronavirus and the fears of the second wave can be really pessimistic and can actually become a self-fulfilling prophecy that exacerbates the current issue? Yeah, I think there's a long history of pessimism just being more popular than optimism. Even if you look at history, optimism is a right stance that you should have. It's what makes the most sense because the world got better for most people most of the time. Pessimism is always more popular because as I've summed it up, pessimism usually sounds like someone trying to help you, whereas optimism often sounds like someone trying to give you a sales pitch. And so when people are pessimistic, if someone out there says, let's just think of it this way. If you're walking down the street in New York and it's a busy street and a stranger says, Rohan, someone's about to punch you. You're going to turn around and say, what, who, what? Like there's a threat. Someone's going to hurt me. Like I will grab your attention instantly. But if someone says, if you're walking down the street and someone says, Rohan, I can make you rich overnight you're probably like, get out of here. You're trying to sell me something bogus. Leave me alone. So the pessimistic things are always going to be more persuasive than the optimism things that we get. A lot of that is just evolution. We've been designed to react with more urgency to threats than opportunities. And in economics, I think the other thing that really causes this to happen, and this explains a lot of what's going on in 2020 with COVID-19 as well, is that progress usually happens very slowly. It's very powerful. It's much more powerful than the pullbacks. But progress happens slowly. But setbacks happen very quickly. They happen very rapidly. So there are no overnight miracles. There are no you know, inventions that change the world overnight. It just doesn't happen. It takes time. But there are a lot of overnight tragedies or even just instant tragedies. September 11th, COVID-19, these things happen in a very, very short period of time. September 11th took place in seconds, but it completely changed the world within those seconds. There is no direct comparison that is similar to that on the optimism side. Things like medical technology and new computer technology, geopolitics, those things, the progress that comes from that takes years, if not decades, if not generations. It's more powerful than any of the setbacks. It's just slower. 
And that is why even if you intuitively know that you should be an optimist, you look at history and you say, look, things get better. I believe in people's ability to solve problems. You are still going to be bombarded on a daily basis with a constant chain of news that shows setback and problems. And there's going to be recessions and depressions and pandemics and companies going out of business that happen very quickly in a way that grabs your attention. Even if the optimism that will take place throughout the course of your life is going to be more powerful, it's just going to happen so slowly that you're not going to pay attention to it to as great a degree as you do the pessimistic news stories. So I think like a good mindset for people is to be a long-term optimist who expects the world to constantly be falling apart in the short run. It's hard to balance those two or like realize that those two can cohabitate with each other. But that's my mindset is that over the course of my lifetime, things will get much better. But I plan and I expect and I situate my finances with the expectation that it's going to be a constant chain of bad news, a constant chain of recessions, companies going out of business, crazy political environments. Pandemics is not something I really thought about until 2020, but just the general assumption that the world breaks about once a decade. Because historically, that's what's happened. Every decade, the world breaks on average once a decade, whether it was COVID-19 or the 2008 financial crisis or September 11th or the collapse of the Soviet Union or JFK was assassinated, World War II, the Great Depression, World War I. Every decade, something happens that kind of shakes people's beliefs about what they had about how the world works. Every decade, the world breaks. If you just have that as an assumption, you don't know how it's going to break next, but your assumption is that it's going to keep breaking. Then when it happens, however, whatever happens next doesn't feel quite quite as scary or as chaotic as it otherwise would. So you can remain an optimist while still expecting the world to constantly go through these periods where everything seems like it's falling apart. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And it's really just something that it is a delicate balancing act, really staying a long-term optimist, but also expecting this chaos to sometimes unfold in the short run. We were talking earlier about the story aspect of this, and you've written multiple times, especially in your blog, the Cloud Drift Fund blog, which we'll link in the description. You've said before that, you know, stories are more powerful than statistics because they're memorable and easy to contextualize. So what would you say has been the overall story in the market for the past few months during the crisis? And who would you say are like the main characters in that story? I think it's obviously a lot of people have been trying to figure out how to fix the economy. But the, the main story, the main character in the story is, is just the virus. What's interesting is that for the last decade, we always talked about who's going to cause the next recession. What's going to cause the next recession? Is it going to be Ben Bernanke? Is it going to be Jay Powell? Is it going to be Barack Obama? Is it going to be Donald Trump? Who's going to be the cause of the next recession? And of course, it was none of those. It was COVID-19, this virus that we never thought about that has become the main character of the story. And what's important, and of course, this is a lot of people have said this, but it's still hard for a lot of people to grasp is that You cannot fix anything about the economy until you fix the virus. And then, so there is an element to this that things are not going to look, they're not going to look like any version of normal until there's probably a vaccine, whenever that comes. That's the story. Like there's no economic story that you cannot detach from the healthcare story. Now that was very different from 2008, where 2008, we had a financial crisis. 2020, we have a healthcare crisis. We have a virus crisis. We have a pandemic. And it's very different. The Great Depression, too, was a financial crisis. So the solutions to that were financial, whereas now the solutions to these problems are medical. And that's just not something that a lot of economists or investors have really any history with. I certainly don't. But it's the main thrust. So the number of non-medical people that are trying to get up to speed with biology and chemistry and how you know medical supply chains works has been really fascinating because there's been no other economic hit this bad that has been tied to medicine. The flu pandemic of 1918, the pandemic that was you know of similar magnitude, it was worse then, but you know that kind of shook society like it is today. 
had a lower impact on the economy because you know fewer businesses shut down because unlike today, you couldn't work. For, there were virtually no businesses that you could operate from home. So if you were going to close businesses in 1919, you were just going to shut everything down wholesale, which you just couldn't do. Also, a larger percentage of the economy worked in farms who were kind of a little bit more self-sufficient. A much larger percentage of workers worked on farms. So it was it was more feasible, both because of just social necessity, but also the nature of work back then to keep more parts of the economy open. That was a lot of the reason why it got so bad is that you could not shut things down. People had to go to work and therefore they were around each other spreading the virus in 1918. But the broader point that there's really no historical comparison to what we're dealing with right now an incredibly large economic crisis that is solely caused by a biology crisis, a healthcare crisis. That's the main character of the story. And it's a story that we haven't really seen before in history. Yeah, no, I I 100% agree with that. You know, this is such a exogenous factor that really derailed the market. It's not something that was financial, like in 2008 with the subprime taking over the market and creating so much risk or with the overvaluations in the tech bubble. It's very much this extraneous meteor hit that we took from the biological phenomenons that happen in this world. So we have time for one final question. And, you know, with all my guests who have typically been older, you mentioned that you're 36. Our, our guests have been a lot older than that in the past. So they've had children who are old enough who they've taught money to. But I know that you have two uh, very young children who may not be able to comprehend money in, in any significant way at the moment. But what sort of lessons about money and economics and investing in finance, that whole sphere, what sort of lessons do you hope to plan to teach them in the future? They will figure it out for themselves. So I will point them in the right direction, but it's going to be up to them. And the reason I do that is because everyone is different. There's no really universal lessons of money where it's, you know, I should say, this is what you have to go do and shake my finger at them because what works for me might not work for them. But I hope to teach them that if you want to use money to make you happier, you want to use it as a tool to bring more happiness in your life, the main way that you do that for most people is not by buying more stuff, not even necessarily buying more experiences, which is the kind of cliche answer. To me, it's using money to control your time, to have more control over your life so that you wake up every morning and say, I can do whatever I want to do today. That to me is the greatest thing that money can buy. And maybe that means that because of your savings and the money that you built up, you can take a job that has a shorter commute. That's going to make you a lot happier. You can take a job in an industry that might pay less, but it's something that you actually genuinely enjoy doing. That's going to make you a lot happier. It'll make it so that you can retire whenever you want to. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to retire early. It's just you have the option to do it when you're ready on your own terms versus someone else's terms. That's going to make you happier. I think if I can impart that on them, that would make me happy is kind of the the biggest lesson that I can give them is not just that you should save, but what do you do with your savings is the hard question. And that's hopefully what I would pass along to them. Well, Morgan, it's been such a fascinating conversation. I feel like we could have you on for so many more hours just to talk about psychology, history, behavioral finance, and maybe we'll have you on again to do that. But for now, I mean, it was such a great pleasure to talk to you and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you both of you for having me on. This has been fun. Thank you again. Wow, Cassie, that was an incredibly insightful episode. What were some of the key takeaways you got from it? I think the one takeaway is that we really have to view this virus's impacts on markets from a much more distinct lens than we've seen in previous crises. Our economy was great before a hit, but this virus was just a huge meteor strike. That changes our perception for how the market has reacted, as it didn't fall in response to overvaluation or weakness in the mortgage market, but just due to something non-financial. Yeah, and Morgan's behavioral and psychological perspective on investing really lends itself to looking at this market in a non-traditional way, because it isn't your traditional financial or economic crisis. 
I thought another interesting takeaway was with how survivorship curves really have skewed during the market's comeback from the lows. Day trading has become popular because you see new investors making lots of money. But when you look at the reality, it's not very many that do make those high returns. Many young investors seem to have been playing with fire when first trading stocks or derivatives, though they are getting exposure to finance at a relatively early time in their lives. Yeah, and that's also aided by the stimulus checks and the other stimulus the government put in. Another concept that he explained quite simply was how money is competing in this pandemic. With ultra-low interest rates, it doesn't benefit investors to put their money in banks or bonds that are paying out the lowest that they've ever been paying out. That, along with the credit conditions that arise from lower interest rates, has stimulated the economy to such a degree where only expectations of future performance are taken into account since investors are incentivized to invest way more in stocks. This, along with unprecedented stimulus, helps to explain why stocks have acted the way they have. Another takeaway was understanding how this market, and every crisis in the past, has been driven by stories more than just numbers and statistics. The story that underlies the economic story of millions of people losing their jobs and businesses going bankrupt is a story of a freak act of nature. It's also easy to contextualize the story in terms of pessimism and optimism. The pessimism of a story like this spreads much faster than the optimism around progress, so it's no wonder such a panic ensued in the markets. And since we recorded this episode way back in August, there has definitely been a lot more factors contributing to this, especially with certain states back to locking down parts of their economies, more COVID outbreaks in places with previously little to no cases, and obviously the negotiations for a new stimulus package and the election. Exactly. Well, Cassie, it was great to have you back on as a co-host. Good luck with college apps and the rest of your online senior year. Thanks. And it was great to be back on. And I'll be back for far more in the future. Hey guys, I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. It truly means the world to us. If you like this episode and others, let us know by subscribing and giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts and following us on Spotify. Share us with your friends and check us out on Instagram and Twitter, both at StreetFins. You can also follow me on Twitter at Rohan Invest. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email fspodcast at streetfins.com. Thanks once again to the incredible Morgan Housel for his insights today. I hope you understand the COVID-19 market in a more simplified way. You can check him out on Twitter at Morgan Housel and check out his new book called The Psychology of Money. Link in the description. Once again, we're really happy that you're taking the initiative to learn finance and to better your future. If you haven't already, we highly encourage you to check out streetfins.com for articles, videos, and other content. Join the Streetfins community and tell your friends about us so that they can learn about finance too. We'll talk to you next time on Finance Simplified.